Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we now wish that you would whisper to us and that we would have the capacity to hear and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to talk this morning for a few minutes about the shyness of God. The challenge of a shy God, but also the incredibly good news that we serve a shy God. I invite you to imagine that you are God for a moment. Spirit. Before Genesis 1, before any Big Bang, before it all, Spirit God, there's nothing else. You are all-knowing, all-good, timeless, and all-powerful. At some point, you make a decision. You wish to bring into existence matter, material things, the universe. And so through your incredible intelligence, infinite wisdom, power, you bring into being everything that is. And nestled in all of this creation, you fashion a human being. You create something that you call your image. Not so much head and shoulders, knees and toes, but rather because you are in fact not material but spirit, rather you create spirit. Little spirits, little gods, children of God. Extraordinary. What must have this been like? I'd like to invite my little friend Liam forward for a moment. You know, I wonder in all of our wranglings over Genesis 1 and 2 and what that whole creation story was about, if we miss holy imagination. Parents, you know it. I know it. That feeling of holding your child in your arms for the very first time. I don't know if God has new experiences. I'm not qualified to make that judgment. But I can tell you, the first time I hold, held my child in my arms, I knew things and I felt things that I have never known and never felt before. It's true, isn't it? A kind of love I did not know the capacity that I had. And a willingness to die for this treasure, unquestioned. I wonder what God was feeling. I wonder how long he let little Adam, little Eve stay as babies before they were allowed to grow up. I wonder what was going on in the heart of God. A love like never before. A willingness to die like never before. His life Ah, now these little creatures, his image in his arms. Extraordinary. But then the story goes that this independent creature, free will, 
A person like God in the ability to make decisions on his own, on her own. Looked at God and said, we prefer non-reality to reality. We choose death over life. We'd like to reject all of this relational business that you've set in motion. What does God do? I think that he probably entertained four unpleasant options. That's all he had. First, end reality. Kill his babies. End the universe. After all, who would know? Start over if necessary. But how can you do that with this sort of love? Perhaps he thought about amending reality. Uh, after all, he proved to be a pretty good surgeon, perhaps putting a new chip in the brain and essentially turning the human being into something else, just an automaton doing whatever God has to say. But how could you? Destroying relationship forever. Perhaps the option of what we might call bending reality. That is, God, with all of his incredible intelligence and skills and charisma, his unlimited power, he could overwhelm any other argument easily. Perhaps he could just bribe and overpersuade and dominate. He must have known that this would not have been difficult. But that sort of overwhelming argumentation, that sort of bullying even through bribes, he must have known that would destroy the sweet relationship he had in his arms. And so he was left with a fourth unpleasant option. He would descend. He would descend delicately and see if the relationship could be restored. Thank you, Liam. So what is the story of this delicate descent, this subtlety? Well, the most conservative estimates tell us that thousands of years go by. And around the earth, it seems that from time to time, God offers a whisper, a prompting, a human being here, a man there, a woman there say, I think I sense there's something else. I think I hear, could it be a God? The supernatural? Might there be more than what we see in front of us? These whispers, these hints, these innuendos, but not overwhelming. One particular family, beginning with Abraham, discovers that somehow in their family, God was going to do something significant. And through the generations, Isaac and Jacob and Samuel and the prophets, this sense, this suspicion that somehow in their lineage would be born a human being that would make a big difference in the world and God was somehow behind it. But remember, friends, this is never perfectly obvious. In no generation is it crystal clear. 
It's a hint. It's a suggestion. There's a notion. And to this day, teasing out those prophecies out of the Old Testament record is not just perfectly obvious, but rather the careful work of paying attention to the text. And then about 2,000 years ago, something happens. Now, the story I'm about to tell you did not take place in an era where we have a video screen. There's no YouTube. There's no permanent recording. We can go to no computer hard drive with absolutely clear evidence where the events that I'm about to describe to you took place in precisely this way. For whatever reason, and I suspect I know, God did not choose for this miracle to happen in an age of, quotes, scientific certainty. A star, it's a hint. Some dreams, a suggestion. The appearance of an angel with a message not completely understood. Obscurity. A Jewish girl named Mary. A son is born. It's a big deal. They know it, but can't quite put their finger on precisely why. For the first 30 years of this human being's life, we know almost nothing. Either because nothing significant happened or because God somehow decided that we didn't need to know about it. And then for a little over three years, some 1,300 days, the sometimes quiet ministry of a man named Jesus of Nazareth, a rabbi, a miracle worker, who did not travel very far geographically, who spoke to comparatively few people when looking at other historical figures, through parables, through mystery, through suggestions that had people scratching their heads. He spoke of God. And then he is hung on a cross with other common criminals. He will die more quickly than some. He is taken down from that despicable piece of wood. A spear thrust in his side to ensure that he is indeed dead. Buried in a tomb just outside Jerusalem. And a little over a day later, some women who have become attracted to his message show up. The tomb is empty. And then they see him. It, it looks like him. They're sure about that. But somehow his body is a, a little bit different. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has been resurrected, they say. For the next six weeks, Jesus makes appearances to this group, into that. Several hundred people in a variety of settings, they see him. Again, it is Jesus, but somehow he looks different. The stories circulate even though they have no category for telling this kind of tale. They have no background that would cause them to believe such an outrageous thing. And to boot, even speaking of this, 
would land them tortured and killed. About a month and a half into these mysterious appearances, Jesus, for one last time, appears to those believers and tells them that he is going to go away. It will be a considerable amount of time until he returns. But while he is gone, they are to become witnesses. They are to tell this story. And one day he'll come back and it will be a very big deal. And for 2,000 years, first through the oral tradition, storytelling by the lakeside and around fireplaces and in synagogues, and later through the writing of scrolls and copies and the compilation of all of these materials passed along generation to generation, language to language, scholars trying to come to grips with the meaning of it all, we continue to tell this story. Now, how might we think about all of this? Perhaps this would be one way of looking at it. Imagine, if you will, that this represents the Old Testament era. It is beautiful, but fragile. It's delicate. But the assumption in this crystal, something is coming. Something ought to be inside this vessel. And then we discover... A little scoop of God and very God. The substance of Jesus Christ and there are witnesses and they see him and they hear him and they taste him. And he tastes very sweet. He leaves the scene and here we are. The Old Testament in all of its beauty, but subtle. Suggesting that something was to come. The New Testament, the testimony of those who tasted Christ. Speaking to us of something that happened. And this is the Christmas story. Now, the critics might say, the secularist might say, well... That's not nearly clear enough. That's not strong. That's not bold. I mean, if this is God's best case, well, it should be rejected out of hand. I mean, after all, in any American political campaign, and particularly this one, the louder and the more boisterous and the most specific and outrageous you can be, that's a candidate we should be into. This sort of candidate on planet Earth no one wants to pay attention to. It's not strong enough, they say. Well, some Christians would argue then, well, this really isn't a good example of what Scripture really is. No, in fact, it's perfectly obvious. God gives us a big, thick, nasty milkshake from some fast food joint. And beyond that, every day, He gives us greasy French fries. And yes, it is true 
this marvelously disgusting sandwich with a variety of things in it and I asked Chris Lowen when I should buy this and he said you can buy it 10 days before you can buy it the day before it'll pretty much be the same when you show it on Sabbath morning (laughs) but somehow there's this impulse in us that says of the scriptures no they're big and they're bold and they're glorious and you and they will just can no no these are our scriptures This is what God has given us. Subtlety, hints, suggestions, whispers. But why? As he often does, I think C.S. Lewis gets it right. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, which you may know, he fashions as a discussion between two devils where God is, in fact, the enemy. Notice these words. You must have often wondered why the enemy, God, does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present in human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. One must face the fact that all the talk about God's love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We devils want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. Our cause is never more in danger, the devils say, than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asked why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Why does God not overwhelm us? Why has he not screamed and shouted and powered up on his children? Because his intent is love. So what are we to do? Perhaps a metaphor, an analogy would be instructive. Gio, can I borrow your flute for a moment? You know, there's something about music Music is fragile. 
It is delicate. A composer has to quietly hear the melody that's in the air and then must carefully and diligently put those notes, that song, on the page. The player goes out and buys an instrument, which is fragile. In fact, this morning when I asked Gio if I could borrow her flute, do you know what she said? Pastor Alex, are you going to drop it? <laughs> what? <laughs> sorry, it's too late for sorry. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that musical instruments almost always are housed in secure cases? The instrument is delicate. And one has to practice faithfully in order to get the notes right, the pitch clear, the sound beautiful. For it is easy to go in the opposite direction. And then we must listen quietly to hear its message. And wrapped in all of this, of course, is the fact that Music requires investment, doesn't it? Have you heard the phrase, a starving artist? Now, why do we say that of musicians, a starving artist? I'll tell you why. Because it is easier to invest in bombs than bassoons. It is easier to invest in violence than violins. Because music never screams. Music cannot demand. When the high school is trying to cut budgets, where do they go first? Oh, what's not utilitarian? What's not absolutely needed? It's music that goes. And orchestras close around the country. Why? For lack of investment. Because music cannot demand by its very nature. Music delicate. And so is the music of the gospel, friends. Because God does not scream, it requires that we listen quietly to the melodies in the air and to patiently and faithfully journal what we hear. It means that we must faithfully practice the instrument being ourselves that we might play what he has to say with beauty and with accuracy. It means that we must invest. It means that we must support. It means that we must be, pay attention to his sweet melody. We read in the Christmas story and Mary wrapped the babe in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Mary cradled Jesus. Mary cradled God. Do you see it? In the beginning, God cradled us. And now, we must cradle 
him. Abraham cradled him, and Isaac and Jacob cradled him, and the prophets held him, and the women at the tomb cradled him, and Christians throughout history holding tenderly to Jesus. It is sometimes said God does not need us to accomplish his purposes. Not true. For his objective is not to win a military battle in some physical place, but rather to capture our hearts with his love. And my friends, I've heard it takes two to tango. It takes two to be in relationship. And so the sweet story of Christmas is a God who wants to hold on to us and who asks us, who invites us to hold on to him. This is the story. This is the story of a God who did not end or amend, or bend, but delicately descended to be with us and to reclaim us in sweet relationship. I invite you to bow your heads for just a moment. Oh, Father, this Christmas, we covet your whisper, and we pray for ears that we might hear it, that we might hear the sweetest melody of all, Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.